Welcome to podcast number 102 of My Favorite Detective Stories. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Today's date is May 26, 2020. My guest today is Dana King. Dana has earned the Seamus Award nominations for two of his Nick Forte novels, A Small Sacrifice and The Man in the Window. He also writes the Penn's River novels, of which the fifth novel in the series, Pushing Water, was released from Down and Out Books on May the 4th. His work has appeared in the anthologies, The Black Car Business, Unloaded 2, The Seamus Sampler 2, and Blood, Guts, and Whiskey. He's a member of the International Thriller Writers and the Private Eye Writers Association and Sisters in Crime. We both attended Indiana University of Pennsylvania in the 1970s. It is my pleasure to introduce Dana King to the podcast. Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. My Favorite Detective Stories features crime fiction writers who discuss their latest books and what makes their fictional detectives tick. Throughout my investigative career spanning five decades, I cannot think of a time that I didn't have a good crime novel on my coffee table or bedstand. We will also talk about their favorite authors as well. On alternating weeks, we are introducing a new podcast, How to Rocket Your P.I. Business, featuring successful private investigators. They offer insights into their careers and advice for those just starting out or for those who are struggling. We will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish the show without asking them to share a few of their favorite detective stories and sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather around my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my own crime thriller with a mystery twist, Odessa on the Delaware. A Russian gang enforcer is on a murderous rampage to take over the entire Philadelphia mob scene. A homeless vet doesn't know that he has the proof or that he's next on the list. The stakes are high for this deadly cat and mouse game set on the bleak Philly waterfront of years gone by. FBI agent Marsha O'Shea, a gunslinger from the Miami cartel days, is back in her hometown, quietly finishing out her career, but now is drawn into this case with a secret pushing her doggedly to follow the clues, only to uncover a greater secret that may get her killed in the final showdown. You can buy Odessa from your favorite online retailer. Dana, welcome to the show. John, how are you doing? Uh, life is wonderful here. How about down there in Laurel, Maryland today, sir? Oh, we've got 80 degrees and the sun went behind a cloud, but it's just been a beautiful day today, though. It's going back down to 53 tomorrow. Oh, man, 80 degrees. You can get the sunshine, uh, suntan <laughs> lotion on for that one. Just about. Mm. Up here in uh, Connecticut, we had uh, rain this morning, started out in the low 30s, and now it's in the 50s going to be a nice uh, weekend, I think. So uh, as we air this, it's uh, March 20th, uh, 2020. And we don't have to talk about what's going on right now outside of our writing. <laughs> Good. So yeah, I know. Anyway, <laughs> uh, 
so we met uh, back in Dallas in uh, October, I think, uh, at BauscherCon. And we were both uh, attendees to a panel. And we both enjoyed talking with the panelists after the panel ended. And we also enjoyed talking to each other. We swapped cards. And uh, I wanted to have you on the podcast. So here you are. Thank you for uh, joining me, sir. And thank you very much for having me and getting me on uh, so quickly after I ask you. I'm much, much appreciated. Well, you know, uh, people get, you know, people get in line to, uh, to join the My Favorite Detective Stories podcast, and they're just going to have to get in line behind you. So that's all there is to it. <laughs> now, um, we're going to talk about where you're slotted a little bit later. We're going to keep people in suspense. But uh, for the time being, uh, let's just talk about how you got started on your writer's journey and how you, how your two series were developed, what, what genres they're in, and, and about your standalone. And I'm going to be a listener just like all my uh, podcast uh, uh, listeners are. Okay, well, thank you. Um, I was, for my young adult life, I was a professional musician. And when I realized I couldn't make enough money doing that, and I got into what I call real jobs, all my friends were still musicians at that time. And I needed a creative outlet. And there was just, there was irritation among some friends that an audition was supposedly rigged and just for something to do i wrote a detective story and i and i mercilessly ripped off mickey splain i read three mickey splain books and tried to write as much in that style and go over the top as i could but i worked all my friends into the story and it was very well received so as i got a job i wrote another story about that job and that story was well received so then I got a, a, a different job and I wrote one more about that job and that was very well received. And I got to thinking, well, gee, maybe I'm, maybe I'm pretty good at this. And in the interim, I had discovered Raymond Chandler. Oh man. So I started writing private eye stories about a Chicago detective. I was living in Chicago at the time named Nick Forte. And the name was chosen because Forte is the musical word for loud, but literally in Italian, it means strong. And and then I wanted a name that had, you know, some hard consonant sounds in it. So Nick. Yep. Well, I thought it was a good name for that. And uh, I wrote four of those and nothing happened with them. I had a couple of agents. None of them could sell. I got I got very nice rejections. My favorite rejection was still it. We think it. it it's not good enough for a hardcover series, but it's too good for paperback. Mm. And I was thinking, well, that's OK. I'll take the paperback deal. And I, I'm shame me. That's all right. But no, they didn't want to do that. So and I'll get into the other series. I'll tell us a little bit out of order. When I finally got around to releasing the PI stories by self-publishing them, uh, first one was nominated for a Seamus Award. Hmm. Well, I thought that was pretty cool. And then the third one was also nominated for a Seamus Award. And I kind of figured, well, then that was, if you need a confirmation the, the, that I knew what I was doing as a writer. That's about as good a confirmation as you're going to get. But in the interim, I hadn't lived in Chicago in a long time by that point. Um, the detective stories really hadn't gone anywhere. The Seamus nominations hadn't shown up yet. So I got into the whole business of, well, write what you know and what do I know? Well, I knew about growing up in a small town northeast of Pittsburgh that the economy just died when the steel mills all left. Um, so I set my police procedural series there because i'm not a, i'm not a fan of shows like law and order or csi or this all the all the gee whiz technical stuff mm -hmm. to me a procedural um 
you know, from the detective perspective, uh, Ed McBain, I think, still is the master of that. And from the patrol side, um, Joe Wamba was was the master at that. But I read a book oh, several years ago by Bo Deedle, who was a New York detective for years, a legendary detective in New York, I guess, uh, NYPD. And he, the premise of his book was basically, talked about two major cases he broke, and that they can show you all the cool technology they want on TV, but the cop still break cases by talking to people and looking at evidence and building cases. And very often because somebody who shouldn't have said anything talks out of turn Mm -hmm. and they can turn that around on somebody. And to me, those are much more interesting stories to write because you can base them much more on character and and dialogue, which to me are a lot more fun to read and write Mm -hmm. than just putting them on on technology. So I've, I've written uh, four of those now and the fifth one's coming out in May. Great. And uh, we should air, and I said today is March 20th, which when we're recording, but we should air in mid-May. Uh, so this will be a perfect time. So do you have a um, title for that book that's coming out? Yes. The title of the book is called Pushing Water, which doesn't make any sense in a vacuum, but there's a line in the book where the, the chief of police who knows the cops are just up against it. They have more crime than what they have cops in this town. And he makes a comment about, I know we're pushing water uphill here, but we have to do something. Okay. So I kind of kept that for the title. Well, we're going to save that uh, also for your plug at the end. I I, I use the word plug. I mean it that way. We'll talk about how the best way people can find you. And uh, and then we'll talk about having them watch for uh, Pushing Water. So uh, you mentioned Bo Deedle. And he is a now retired from the PD, but also owns a uh, high-end private investigative consultancy for New York City. A lot of people come to him uh, at a high end for the work that he does. Uh, was that a true crime book that he wrote, or was that? Yes. Did, oh, he didn't fictionalize. He did true crime, so it'd be no, like creative nonfiction. Yeah, the name the name of the book I believe is called One Tough Cop. Okay. And they made a movie of it. I think Daniel Baldwin played Deedle in the movie. No kidding. I think so. One tough cop. Well, he is in in himself. I mean, he's larger, than him, obviously. So, but interesting that you took some uh, homage from Mickey, Mickey Spillane books, and uh, you also mentioned Wamba. Uh, I'm not going to give this away quite yet, but, um, and also a small town in Pittsburgh. So I, I just wanted to kind of touch on that a little bit. Um, you had also attended um, school for your uh, music in Western Pennsylvania. I went to a, a place I believe you know well. I'm a graduate of Indiana University of Pennsylvania, about 70 miles east of Pittsburgh. That's it. My uh, alma mater. I uh, graduated a few years before you. I graduated with a criminology degree in December of 75. I think that uh, my IEP education, dollar for dollar, was the best education I've ever gotten. I don't know how you feel about those days, but I felt that way about my school. I have nothing but fond memories of IUP, and considering where I was in life right about then, I can't think of a better place for me to have ended up with some of the people I got to meet and just the the rate at which I was allowed to progress there. I have nothing but good things to say about IUP. Yeah, and it took my little uh, teaser with you about saying, yeah, I bet you walked around the Oak Grove a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, I knew right away. I, you certainly did. Um, the the school originally started out as a uh, T 
teacher's college. And it became a, a state college, and then it became one of the first universities in the state college system. Uh, Penn State, Temple, and Pitt were uh, land-grant colleges, but the state college system in Pennsylvania had, I think, 13 different schools, and IUP was, at the time, the crown jewel, correctly. Yeah, it was one of the few uh, accredited universities in the system. Was it still that way when you were there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was it was it was the because a lot of them it was IUP, but a lot of the other state schools, like you know, California was still a state college, Slippery Rock was still a state college, mm-hmm. all those were still state college. I think I think they're all universities now, but at the time I think IUP might have been the only university in the system. Right. So uh, just to uh, talk a little bit about where you grew up, um you are sandwiched in your podcast slot uh, between um, two people uh, that are going to air before and after you. Uh, the first that's going to air before you is Joseph Wamba, and the one that's going to air after you is Michael Carita. So uh, there's an Indiana connection with Michael Carita because he's out in Bloomington, Indiana, and which our school was many times mistaken for. Uh, and uh, then there's uh, Joe Wamba from East Pittsburgh. So go ahead. Tell me your uh, Wamba and Corita stories. And, and don't leave out anything. They're both, okay. they're both beautiful stories. My, uh, I've, you know, Joe Wamba has been an enormous influence on me. Uh, even before I knew he was originally from Pittsburgh. I knew him as an L.A. compliment. And I've been reading his book since he wrote The New Centurion. So I go back to him from since the beginning. And, uh, but I had written uh, three or three of my police procedurals. Before it started to occur to me, as I went back and read one of his books, oh yeah, what an influence he was on how I viewed procedurals, particularly from the from the patrol officer side. So I went to his website and read some articles he written, read some interviews, and there was a contact link. And I sent him a note, basically, you know, thanking him and and telling him what a, what an influence that he'd been on me and all the stuff that you know that you would expect. I would say. And I got a message back a few days later saying saying he appreciated the message, but I didn't send a mailing address. He would send me something. So I immediately sent him a mailing address, and about a week later in the mail, I got an envelope with two uh, very nice bookmarks that had that have uh, an image of his badge and a list of all his books. And on the back, he wrote personalized notes, um, one of which was, you know, Dana, thank you for the kind words. You made my day mm. with his signature on it. So I immediately had my wife laminate them. And those are my two go-to bookmarks. They never leave the house. If I take a book out of the house, I put a different bookmark in there. Gotcha. I will keep those forever. Those, those are those are cherished possessions. Well, he was a uh, gracious guest, and what you just said uh, reinforces the way he sounded with me uh, during our podcast. And I think it's nice that it comes as a uh, like a post comment or a postscript to his interview, which is going to air the week before you. So let's. Let me let me hear about the Michael Carita story. The Carita story is, is is kind of funny. Um, you know, K I and K O, our names are close in the alphabet. And several years ago at BoucherCon, we found ourselves seated side by side in the signing room, and we chatted for a few minutes. And he's also very nice. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of his. I remember reading his first PI book, um, and being hooked on his stuff right right away. And we chatted for a bit, and then the line formed that I had two people in my line, and his line snaked all the way past the booksellers out the door. 
he must have had 50 or 60 people in his line. And my wife never wanted to miss an opportunity, was going to want to take a picture of me, you know, signing whatever couple of books I might get to sign. But she positioned herself in such a way that when she took the picture, it looked like Carita's line was mine. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good wife. That's a good supporter. I got that's right. That that's a keeper. Yeah. For real. That's wonderful. And he comes on, um, the week after, uh, this podcast airs. So, uh, it's a nice intro for him because, uh, yeah, I'm very, very happy to uh, be interviewing him as well. So, uh, but you, you mentioned the Nick Forte series. Really, we haven't really chatted much about your uh, uh, pet, uh, stories about being around Pittsburgh, the area that you knew. So can we kind of dive into that a little bit for me too, please? Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I was born in New Kensington, Pennsylvania. And the hospital I was born in is no longer there. My parents took me home to an apartment in the next little town over, which was Arnold, Pennsylvania. And that apartment has since burned to the ground. It's not, oh. And it's just an empty lot right now. And then they took me out to a house in uh, out in the country a little bit, in a little town called Lower Burrow, Pennsylvania, where my parents lived for 57 years until my father died a couple of years ago. Oh. And uh, we used to go back regularly for it. So all of my roots are back in the, in that area. So what I did was I combined the three towns into one and called it Penn's river. Cause that okay. gave it a, about a population of 30 to 35,000. If you added all three of them together, mm-hmm. which meant I could have probably 30 to 40 cops in there, but I wouldn't have to, you know, that would be how big the force was. You wouldn't use them all, but that was a, it was a, I thought a little bit of a critical math for size that, different types of crimes would take place there. Rather than, I, I didn't want too many jurisdictions. In fact, I even invented a fictional county so that the whole town was basically Neshannock County. And there was parts of unincorporated Neshannock County that I use in the stories because I one of the things I didn't want to do, and again, this is something that I learned from reading Ed McBain's book. Um, if I made everything about the locations fictional, I didn't have to worry about what the police procedures and the criminal court procedures were in those actual towns. I could use best police practice and then adjust them as they suited my needs. So I really, really have to worry about Pennsylvania law mm-hmm. and I can make the police forces run about how a generic police force in that area would, unless I have something I want to do with it. But the, the, the point of the book, I mean, they're crime stories and they're, I try very much to follow Wamba's edict where the stories are as much about how the the case works on the cops as it is how the cops work on the case. Oh, true. But the town is really having tough times. And most folks don't know this. There was a time when New Kensington, Pennsylvania, which is one of the three little towns I'm talking about, um, produced 80% of the aluminum in the world. In the and world. Now it, in the world. And now it produces none. The original Alcoa plant was in New Kensington, Pennsylvania. Uh, my grandfather worked there and my grandfather-in-law worked there. And in fact, they each left fingers there for each from accident back from, you know, back in the day, that was a fairly common thing where, where I grew up with all the mills there. It was very common for uh, people my age to have grandparents, grandfathers who were missing fingers because yeah. they would lose them in mill accidents. Uh, now I don't think there is, there's a couple of small fabricating operations, but the only mill worth mentioning in that whole area, there is actually across the river in a town called Brackenridge, 
uh, and they're having um, some issues themselves. So it, you know, I watched everything and it all fell apart about the time I was getting out of high school in the, in the, you know, middle seventies. So this left a very strong imprint on me. So the book basically are about, you know, the crimes and the cop, but how does a town like this deal with having at one time really been quite prosperous and now there's nothing there. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Oh, the bankers still got the money and the old money still got the money. But, but, uh, the people that, uh, built, made the profit, their fingers and their, and their limbs, uh, are, are left out to dry lack of a better word. Well, it's kind of interesting. Again, growing up where I did, um, I hear people complain about, you know, the, 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 one percent and the haves and the have nots. And I come fairly far on the left of that discussion, but my comment is, why are you thinking this is new? Mm-hmm. It's always been like this. I mean, to the point where my father worked for A and P the old grocery stores for years. Sure. He'd worked there for, Oh God, probably 25 years off and on between his army being in the army. And the way he found out that they were closing the Pittsburgh division and laying him off was I heard it on the radio and called to ask if it was true. Huh? And that, he said, let me call you back. And he called me back 20 minutes later. He says, yeah, you're right. So it was announced on the radio. They never told the employee. Wow. Well, that was in, also indicative of the time too. Yeah. Yep. Wondered which way employee loyalty went. All that. I think employees were a lot more loyal to employers, but that's my my opinion. So, yeah. So that's the kind of towns that is your backdrop and your setting and affects pretty much um, the character of uh, all your characters and it somehow always is a filter from which it comes. Right. Yes. And, and one of the things I did, I didn't realize at the time when I was sort of casting the book, but the main character and the, and the, the cop who sort of holds things together is a, is a, uh, a detective named Ben Doherty. And just to help me try to set the book in my mind, Ben is, uh, was my father's first name and Doherty is my mother's maiden name. So, now, now I've, I'm invested in having this work out right. And the way I did it with him was he grew up in Penns River, but I'm using the name for the town now. And he spent nine years in the army, did a couple of tours of Iraq, served some time as he was an MP. So he did, uh, did a tour at Leavenworth and he'd come back because he loves the town and the, uh, the chief of police is a, it has been a Dutch uncle to him for years. And he wants to work with his, with his, uh, his uncle Stush, they call him. Okay. But what, what Doc, everybody calls him, is able to do is he grew up there and he loves it the way the people who stayed there did. There aren't a lot of people his age who were still there because there weren't any jobs. And he came back, so he now sees it for what it actually is. He's been out in the world. He's turned down six-figure offers to work for security firms to go back and work in this little burg. So huh. he kind of he kind of sees things from both directions. He he loves it and he wants to fix it, but he also can see what's wrong and yeah. what needs to be changed. So there's always that little bit of friction in him as to how to get things to work out. And that I, I I'll admit, I, I think that's me, that's that's kind of the, the tension in the book. And I lucked into it. It didn't occur to me when I wrote the first one. As I realized as I worked through it, oh yeah, well, this is a natural circumstance. He can leave whenever he wants, but he doesn't want to, although there's a part of him that says, You're a fool to stay here. Nice. That's that's a b- very well developed character with a a backstory and 
um, so, somewhat of a thematic uh, DNA. I mean, is that a good word? Yeah, I think that, so. Yeah, that's part of his DNA. That that's, but you know, placing him in that role, placing Doc in that role, of trying to be a change agent as a chief of police in a down and out town. Wow, you you haven't made it easy for this guy. <laughs> well, and actually, and, and, and he's not the chief. He, they keep trying to make. The problem oh, is okay. the chief has conflicts with this rich guy from Pittsburgh who kind of runs the town. He's bought the mayor. He's bought the city council and he wants Stan Naprakowski out of there. Okay. And they keep wanting to promote doc and doc doesn't want the job. He came back to work for Stan, not to push him out. Right. And there's the friction there is, is that they're trying to get rid of Stan and they're, they're trying to, you know, suck up to doc and doc's having none of it. Right. I mean, Stan's like family to him. Right. Okay. Loyalty. Little thing. Yes. Minor yes. thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, it's, yeah, I know you say that with, with some irony there, but. No, I didn't. I meant who, it straightforward. I yeah. Pe- I pe- it, pe- you, know, you have to have who, loyalty to the people right. that, you know, you have to stick to. And that's important. Well, and people who grow up in towns like that and stay there have a great deal of inherent loyalty just in their character or they would have left. I mean, there, there are times I've been gone for since I joined the army in 1980. And just, there were no jobs there. And I've been fortunate about finding jobs and I've moved never too far away, but haven't been back to that area. And I'll, I'll, I'll admit there are days when I feel, I would say disloyal is not too strong a word where I kind of wish I'd stayed, but mm. I have no idea what I'd be doing there. So, I mean, I kind of had to get out, but yeah, I, I, I still subscribe to the, uh, to the local paper on the internet. I get, I get a lot of stories. idea. I saw a lot of story ideas from that. Oh, I and, bet. um, um, in fact, in fact, in, in the book that's coming out, um, pushing water, there are, there's three or four little stories in there that don't really have anything to do with the main plot, but they kind of show you one of the things I'm trying to show is unlike a lot of movies and TV shows and a lot of book is it just because they had a murder doesn't mean that's the only thing these cops are working on. Oh, right. There's yeah. a lot of other stuff going on. So these are the distractions and all of the distractions I took from the local paper. They're all things that actually happen there. Then I changed the name and dressed up some. Yeah. But um, but all that stuff now, I just I just continue to read the paper and I pick up things um from those. And that's what my little side stories are, which is where I realized where the Wamba influence came in. You know, Wamba has a main story, but he tells you a ton of little ancillary stories, I I call them, to show you the character of the of the cop so that when he gets back into the main story. You understand why they did what they did without him having to tell you. It, it's, it's, I don't do it half as well as he does. The way he does it is brilliant. But if you're going to steal, steal from the best. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's nice that you're following up after Joe on the podcast in that and uh, paying him a little homage. Uh, I have to agree with you that um, I think that uh, as I was growing up, uh, following, reading, Joe Wamba, through my police career, my investigator, that art imitated life a little that or uh, art. No, life imitated art. Yes. That I'd read uh, his dialogue. I'd see the situations he was in. And wouldn't you know that that same sort of gallows, you acerbic wit find its way in my lexicon. I can't say that I'm stealing anything from it. I think it's just uh, grafted into me like DNA. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't help it. Uh, you know, uh, 
some of the writers from our era that have read Chandler and Hammett and Ross MacDonald, uh, they're not stealing from those guys. It's just that it became embedded in their heads and it, and it or their heads. And uh, now they can write uh, with a, a clarity, not copycat, but almost as, as part of it, their own DNA. Does that make sense, what I'm saying, yeah. Dana? Yes. In, in fact, I find that without consciously doing I've written five detective stories now, and I've written Pushing Waters, the fifth Penns River story. And I'm just now finishing up the sixth. I'll be done here in the next few weeks. And I find that. Just the way I, when I sit down to write, the Penns River stories are, Charlie Stella described it once as written in a documentary style. Hmm. They're fairly dry. They're very dialogue heavy. Um, and I don't, I don't waste a lot of time. I, I want to get to what's going to happen next, even if it's just a little, a little, like I say, one of those little vignettes. Mm-hmm. But I want to get that story told out there because I want to talk. I want the cops to talk to each other. When I write the PI stuff, um, if they're in first person, because well, actually, you'll like this. The reason I decided to write my first PI book in first person was not because the tradition was to do it that way, but because I had wasn't comfortable with my um, grammar background, and I figured if I got some grammar wrong, I could attribute it to being that's how the detective spoke. <laughs> it was all in first person. I could blame it on him. Okay. Um, but what you get to do when you write a first person detective story, and I know you're aware of this is that's where I may sometimes decide to whack eloquent for some reason. Just decide to get, and, that, and that's the Chandler influence. That's the, I mean, Hammond is probably more of an influence on me long-term, but every so often I'll just sit down and write a paragraph where Nick Forte's thinking about something or describing something or something has affected me. And I'll just decide, well, this doesn't have to be, I can just take a little time here. I'm going to take, a, I'm going to take a paragraph or two or half a page and just, See, can I craft something that's just a little bit different there? And and I don't ever really try to do that. I mean, lines come up that way, but the detective stories are written in a whole different voice mm. than what the Penns River stories are. Yeah. So uh, the uh, you know I'm not going to get into keywords or categories that that writers are concerned themselves with, but if you had to, in in retrospect, looking back written your body of work uh pens river and nick hey where would you say they sit sort of on the on the spectrum where where would the also also bots be i guess for lack of um well the uh the pens river stuff they're they're good solid police procedurals i mean you know the, the also bought I'm, I'm reluctant to make it sound like i'm comparing myself to him but you know that the people who have read the kind of stuff we're talking about, you know, the, the Wombaugh book, mm-hmm. the, the, the McBain's of that kind of police procedural. Um, I, you had a guest on here a little while ago, Mark Bergen's written a wonderful police procedural sure. called apprehension. Right. Um, that, 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 that's a book that, uh, that I, in fact, I told him when he and I become friends, I told him after I read it, I said, expect to see me take some things from this book. In my <laughs> next book. You're going to see stuff in there. Um, so that it, it's that kind of stuff. They're, they're, basic procedurals and and the pi stories are written in the format of classic pi stories i mean i i update them and i and i i, I don't want to sound sound you know stodgy about them but basically somebody comes to forte with a case 
Mm-hmm. And Forte has to investigate it. But as always happened in those kinds of books, the case he winds up investigating is rarely what the person came to him to ask him to do. Nice. There's nice. something else going on here right. that he has to figure out or, or, or something goes wrong. And uh, again, they're, they're probably, you know, um, Robert B. Parker kind of the, the issue I have. I, I'm a huge fan of Dennis Lehane. Okay. And I saw Lehane in an interview once talking about his book and his movie, The Drop, which I love. I own The Drop. I watch, I kind of study it, it. Watching or reading The Drop is like a master class on how to put stories together. It, I highly recommend it. Okay. And he made a comment about it. he considered The Drop to be an honorable failure because nobody saw it. He said it sank like a stone when it released into the theaters and they half expected it would because as he said himself, we realized as we were making it, that we were making a seventies movie. Okay. And that kind of, kind of retro and people didn't, it it didn't catch on like they'd hoped it would. Well, I realized when he said that, I said, well, I love seventies movie. And then I realized, oh yeah, I'm writing seventies or eighties books. Yeah. They are kind of in, in, in a traditional sort of a thing right there. And I know some people like to, like to dismiss that, but you know, I still think there's a lot of stuff that can be done within that format with, with current events that, that you don't have, you know, people, I just saw a questionnaire for a possible interview on a website. that says, well, you know, how, how would you think about um, breaking out of, of the genre and, and, you know, expanding the, the boundaries. And my thought is, we haven't nearly explored all of the alleged boundaries of what we have here now. That's true. There's so many stories here to write that I'm, and I have, I've got notebook right now with two or three potential Forte stories and three or four Penn's river stories and a couple of weapons. Mm. I'd, I'd love to get written. I just have to have time to do them. Well, you know, and, uh, one person, one, uh, Tour de Force has shown us what they can do retro. It's Quentin Tarantino. Now, yes, a little bit on the uh, drawn out horror, horror violence side, few of them, but realistically, I mean, he took a World War II movie. He took mm-hmm. something back uh, that Brad Pitt just got a Academy Award for, uh, late sixties, early seventies, right? Uh, Pulp Fiction. Oh my God. You know, breakout, uh, reservoir dogs, but you, here you are taking a genre and, and just, uh, doing it well. So I don't think there's a, a problem with that. And I think the, uh, advice, uh, about the, the drop and watching it is gonna be, uh, something I can possibly do this weekend because, well, not a lot of other things to do. <laughs> But, yes, we are kind of. <laughs> yeah, but I can write. I can always write, but I can always enjoy a, a good uh, movie as well. So, um, you've you've paid homage a little bit to some of the people that have been show to you, Dennis Lehane, uh, Joseph Wambaugh. You've also enjoyed the writings of uh, Michael mm-hmm. Carita, your uh, signing table mate. Uh, <laughs> uh, anybody else come to mind that you really want to uh, say that was uh, pivotal in your uh, writing career that? You seem to think that was that really had their uh, stuff together, and that you enjoyed reading them, and said, "Boy, I wish I could write like that." Um, the person who's now, I, I talked about the story elements, getting things from Wombaugh, McBain, and how I did it. But I think if you ask most people who my style most resembles, they're going to tell you Elmore Leonard. Ah, um, that's right. We did be, say his name, but go ahead. Yeah, 
because, yep. because the stories are very dialogue heavy. Uh, they're not comedies, but I do like to put as much humor in them as I can. But I try to make it what I call situational humor, where the person who's saying what the reader hopefully laughs at doesn't mean to be funny. Mm-hmm. He's, he's in a stressful situation or he's in over his head, or maybe he's just not quite as smart as he thinks he is. So what he says winds up being kind of funny, and there's a little bit of a, of, a, of a sardonic tone to the whole thing. So Leonard's in there, and I would have to say the other person who was a big influence on Leonard is uh, George V. Hagen. Going back. And, oh, yeah. And, and, yeah, see, I told him, I'm, I'm, I'm a 70s guy. Um, but the thing about Hagen's that, I, that really affected me, re- really influenced me in a lot of ways, is he, you know, he was so dialogue heavy that he had a thing he would do once in a while, but he would lead you right up to the action scene. Say it was going to be the big shootout or the big confrontation or whatever. And then the next chapter plays after the big climactic scene. <laughs> and it somebody who was there driving it to somebody who wasn't there. Oh, that's so can, a cute twist. So they do it all that's in hard. dialogue. That's well, hard. The, the other thing it lets you do if you're writing a story from multiple points of view is, okay, the next chapter can be a person who was there describing it to somebody who wasn't there. The chapter after that can be another person who was there, but maybe on the other on the other side, describing it to a fourth person who wasn't there, and they don't have to match. Mm. Uh, the stories you, don't have to match because they're filtering the information. I know that as an investigator. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Or, so, or they're filtering information, different points of view and everything. Or I then have the option down the line of the story to go, well, or this just guy just lied. Wow. He was trying to make it look good. And if you show the story, if you, if you show the, the climactic scene or the action scene and, and whatever that plot twist, you don't have that on. You, the reader then is stuck with what you said it was. But if I want to maybe put some gray area in there, put a little bit of embellishment, Higgins was a master at that. That, you know, well, don't show it. Just mm-hmm. go after somebody else who does that very well. Um, he wrote a series of books he called the Toronto series. Is a Canadian writer named John McFetrick. Uh, he writes, he wrote a series of books about uh, a biker gang that's moving into being more suit and tie, Lexus driving, classier operation, but they still have the guys on the bike do stuff. And he, he is, uh, I can think of one of his books in particular where he gets you right up to the big shootout where the cops are showing up and two different biker gangs are showing up. And the next chapter is just people talking to each other about what happened. Mm. And it takes you a while to figure out what exactly did happen because no one's telling the same story. And it's nice because the way normally a uh, writer does the action scene, it's from, well, it depends. On, it's a point of view, but it's a set camera. And, and it's filming it like a, a screen uh, viewing of, of the events. And what Higgins and the fellow from Canada, whose last name is hard to pronounce. Petri. <laughs> uh, yeah, you said that easy enough. McFetrich, uh, they 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 then give you uh, after the fact counting. It's it's like from multiple things. It's almost like flashback, you know. Mm-hmm. That's but it's not. It's done through dialogue, which is fantastic. Oh, it's a lovely device. And uh, you're toying with that idea. I used it. I've used it not to the extent Higgins did, but I've used it once or twice. Um, just a situation where I I didn't. But there are sometimes. When you don't want 
you don't want to hold the climax off too much. But it also just doesn't feel right to lay it out just now. So that's I've done it once or twice where I say, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to say what happens. I'm just going to have somebody else talk about it that's and, we'll, and we'll pick it up from there. Particularly it works well in police procedurals because you might be reading the police report. Yeah. Or you might be talking to one of the cops who was there. And then and then it's it's a it's a great way to help char- to establish character of the say the two or three cops were in the discussion because so much depends on how he describes it and what he thinks is worth describing. It tells you so much about him instead of writing a half page telling people about him. You just show what he's like by having it be dialogue. Let him tell your story for you. Oh, I, and now you know, the writer in me is nodding his head up and down, but the uh, criminal defense investigator is, is, is really vigorously nodding his head up and down because uh, to read a police report and what the police report says, the witnesses says, versus when I actually talk to the witnesses themselves or other witnesses, it's exactly like what you just portrayed. It's, I'm saying, these people were at the same shootout. Um, they were, but they had different vantage points and they, and they had their own ideas of what happened and it wasn't being condensed into several paragraphs on a police report. Um, not saying anything about that other than it wasn't that way. And for me to hear what is a fresh accounting of a, of a scene uh, is really uh, unique, being able to hear it. And of course, it's coming through dialogue. And I get a much more well-rounded approach to what is possibly uh, a better understanding of what truly happened. I'm not saying the truth, just right. a, a better understanding of what truly happened because who can really say what but anyway so uh you're saying that uh pushing water is going to be out in uh, may it's going to be about the, yes the same may time 4th. as we're going to air so uh and how, is there a way for people to pre-order that uh, dana yes yes you can pre-order it. uh the best way probably is to go to the down and out books website down and out books.com Okay. And they've got a they've got pre-order links there and I believe for pre-orders they're giving away an electronic copy if you buy a hard copy. Sweet. That is a wonderful wonderful announcement. Because uh everybody wants to get their hands uh, you know and be able to stick their snout in a freshly printed book. I love it myself. Uh but you know if they can get an electronic copy that they can have for the bedstand or you know for the airplane. Oh, we're not on airplanes anymore. Uh, uh, that's right. Forgot that. Uh, or the cruise ship. Oh, no, I can't do that anymore either. (laughs) Oh man. Uh, you know, sitting, uh, somewhere. uh, Well, I I, I can tell you right now where it's going to come in handy for me tomorrow. I'm pretty sure is I'll be taking my Kindle to the supermarket. So I expect to spend some time in line. Uh, yes, yes. And, and, uh, and trying to be compassionate with the, uh, people in front of you with a uh, two baskets full of toilet paper yeah i know <laughs> yeah I try to be compassionate anyway uh so dana um and how can people reach you because uh th- i'm sure that uh, people want to talk about some of the things you've discussed today and and get to get a uh get their own bookmark from dana king i'll be happy to uh my website is uh dana king just mm-hmm. all one word. Uh, or you can send me an email at uh, Dana King crime at Gmail, or I have a Facebook page that I've actually gotten better about, um, about um, putting updates to. Uh, 
I, I, I write a blog post every week and I always make sure updates are there and it's, it's closer to the book coming out. You can find me on Facebook. It's, uh, it's Dana King book. Should okay. bring me up. Fantastic. Well, uh, it's a pleasure having you on. I just thank you so much for being a guest. I'm glad that we took the time to engage at Bausha Khan back in Dallas back in October. Uh, this was a wonderful interview. I really enjoyed the time with us, and I knew it would work. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, and I appreciate it. John, I had a ball. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you have any comments, please leave them on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N. HODA.com. Our guest next week is Tanner Rutledge. Tanner is a Tennessee licensed investigator and the owner of Rutledge Investigations, a boutique firm specializing in child custody investigations. Tanner began his career as a surveillance investigator when he was 19 years old and has 15 years of experience in the investigations industry. His passion for assisting families led him to found Rutledge Investigations in 2013. Tanner is the host of the Covert Investigator, a PI Industry Advice Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to the website and click on our podcast page. There you'll find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do, and they are available to you free as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes in the book titled Mug Shots, My Favorite Detective Stories. Now, here's my ask. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by the stories today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to the iTunes website and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please contact me through the website, www.johnhoda.com, J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.